Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. I have an absolutely beautiful, wonderful guest, an actor, improviser, coach, teacher, owns a theater in Los Angeles called The Ledge, and she's just incredible. Hi, Sean Landry. Oh, hello, Margo. It's been a long time since I've seen you. It seems like forever since we were doing online stuff, you know, in our home, in our living room, which is now a living room again. Who knew? And that was so much fun. I think Jonathan Pitts was with me that time and it was so much fun. What a ball. Well, maybe you'll go back to online because that's my venue now. So you are an amazing person and I'm not saying that lightly, okay? Because (laughs) your body of work and your body is magnificent, just magnificent. So, but let's start at the very beginning because when you were being birthed, I imagine you came out singing an E minor uh, song. Uh, I was, I, I came out late and I was uh, roughly about what I, my mom said I was 10 pounds and 10 inches. So, yeah, I was, I was, I was trouble coming in. And I guess now, since I'm always on time for everything, considering I wasn't when I was born, <laughs> I, I guess, I guess I'm making up for that. So, uh, well, t- tell me about your mom and where were you born in a hospital, I'm assuming? <laughs> well, that would be, yeah, yeah. Considering I'm 58, you know, they weren't doing a lot of in-house birthing back then. I mean, they actually were. I mean, I was born in 65, so it was kind of the beginning of that whole trend. But my mom was like, no, give me the epidural. She, <laughs> I want, I want, well, give me, give me, give me all the pain numbing. Uh, she, I was born in Chicago on the south side of Chicago and uh, Jeeps. uh, It was my mom and I am the third of five. um, Let me see how many, I have so many, I have so many nieces and nephews at this point. It's Uh the original family. So there's five of us. Um, And I came pretty much, um, my sister Angel is four years older than I am. And she has seven kids and Lisa, um, is the second and she has two children, no, three. And then there's me. And then there's my brother, Alan, um, who is the youngest. And then there's my brother, Ron. Wow. So, um, so at that, my brother, Alan was not born at that point when I was born, he came much, much later. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's in his thirties. I'm in my fifties. So roughly around when I was 18, uh, 17, 18, he was born. Wow. Gee. So, yeah, it was like surprise. Uh, everyone, <laughs> and everyone in my home was pregnant. All the women were pregnant. Literally, the, my my niece, Stephanie, is three months younger than her uncle. So, 
Yeah. So I was kind of the built-in babysitter at, at that point in my life. Um, but my mom was amazing. She was a banker. Mm-hmm. She uh, worked at Connell Bank in Chicago and she helped move just tons and tons of money uh, from because uh, she worked in trust securities. Wow. And yeah, she was she was not expecting. I was for all purposes, Margot, the elephant in the room because I come from very professional women. So bankers, t- you know, teachers, nurses. And then they were like, what do you want to be? An actor? Whoa, where, how, how did this happen? Uh, Go ahead. But yeah, I, I mean, it was, you know, we considered ourselves middle class, uh, middle class, upper middle class, but in, because society is the way it is and us being African-American for all purposes, we were poor. Uh, so (laughs) white folks middle white folks uh poor is of african-americans middle class but you know my you know my grandma owned you know apartment complex two uh duplex we lived on the second floor um on the south side of chicago um bootsy played a lot parliament funkadelics played a lot right 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 yeah yeah. Um, if you ever seen the movie Crooklyn, uh, which is Spike Lee. Yes. Um, and or any Spike Lee neighborhood, that was kind of the south side of Chicago. Everyone had fun. There was always something going on. Um, and I came, I grew up roughly around the time where there weren't a lot of gang activity. Uh-huh. Yeah. By the time by the time the 80s hit, uh everything changed where it was a lot of drugs and, you know, we all lived it. So that kind of came into the scene and kind of decimated a lot of um, predominantly African-American communities. Um, So the first thing I did was I got out. Uh, And what got me out, I started in high school, uh, I found theater. I started taking classes at the Goodman Theater. Wow. Um, because they had an arts and educational program. Wonderful. Oh um, my our, gosh. I went to an academy school. I went to a place called Kimwood Academy. So it was still, it was still very theater and music uh, arts and education orientated, uh, which is the reason why I went. And they had a program where it's like, oh, you can take summer classes at the Goodman. And I went, oh, that's the north side of Chicago. I've never been to the north side of Chicago. And that's how I, once I went to Goodman, I was, and I saw Second City for the first time during those classes. That's wow. when I, I was like, yes, I can go and do bubble and brown sugar forever. I can, <laughs> I can, I can go and sing it ain't necessarily so all day long and Porgy and Bess, but wow, they're making things up as they go along. And that's what I wanted to do. And <laughs> What year were you at Second City? When did you start with Second City, do you think? Well, um, I after Geese Company, um, I decided to, you know, pursue other theaters. Got that's how I met Hans. Um, and at that point the group was called Fugle Woogle. Uh, but I got into Second City. Everybody I knew at that point in the juncture after Geese Company, everybody was there. Rosowski had just gotten in. Um which was kind of amazing. I did a stint in Seattle, we came back. And so that was roughly around, we started We Be Negroes. So I got into Second City roughly around 96. Oh yeah. 
95, 96. So at that point on stage, it was, Rosowski was already uh, there, um, but on stage it was, um, let me think. Um, it was Tina Fey, uh, Rachel Dratch. Uh, um, it was uh, Scott Asset. Uh, so, 95. yeah, it was 95, huh? Yes, it was 95. Did you want to make it by 30? Yeah, I wanted, that's exactly right. My goal for Second City was I need to get into Second City before I'm 30 years old. Wonderful goal. Wonderful. Yeah. Now, we're going to go back to Second City, but we're going to time travel a little bit back. When you were a child, were you immediately drawn to singing and dancing? I mean, mm -hmm. so you started theater in high school, but way before then, what was your... Oh, it got me out of whoopings. <laughs> or as, as the kids call it now, corporal punishment. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I used to make my mom laugh. I, it was one of the few things I knew how to do well. Um, everyone thought I was mentally dis uh, mentally challenged because I had a lisp. So I was already, again, the elephant in the room, very weird. But my mom, I, I used to get a, I would start singing and dancing. I used to, I used to sing in my sleep. Actually, I used to walk, talk, comprehend, and eat uh, jelly sandwiches when I, oh my I, gosh. Yeah, I get up in the middle of the night, you know, I had, I, according to my family, I walk around and sing and then go and make myself a jelly sandwich because I don't like peanut butter singing a jam song and then go back to sleep. My sister ended up putting at one point a bell around my ankle to make sure, you know, when I was wandering. Well, I was smart enough to know that the bell was on. So I take off the bell go do my little song and dance, eat my jelly sandwich and go back to sleep. Um, so that was happening. So for all purposes, yeah, um, I I got out of whoopings that way. I, I remember my mom telling the story over one of our many Thanksgivings saying, um, I remember when you used to, you know, get out of, uh, out of whoopings where, you know, I just make her laugh by going, she goes, you know, you can't sing because I would sing all the time. You can't sing, you can't sing. And I would go, well, I guess I have to dance and crack jokes. <laughs> it made my mom laugh. And when my mom passed away from Alzheimer's, oh. um, it, that's a, that's, I call that the Landry disease. Mm -hmm. uh, the Landry Miller Jackson disease. My mom died of it. My grandma died of it. My Aunt Mary's going through third stage right now. Uh, so, you know, and I have MS. So we have we have lots of brain things going on in our family. Um, but when were you diagnosed with MS? I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis uh, in 2009. Um, my eye went out in San Francisco. I was working on the computer as I do. And um, then my eye started blurring over. I'm like, I must have a lash in it. And then by the time I woke up, I couldn't see pretty much out of my left eye. And I went to the doctor. I went to Kaiser, uh, of which Hans works at. And the first eye doctor was like, there's nothing wrong with you. Are you crazy? I went, wow. Then he left me in the office for an hour. I called Hans in tears and said, Hans, I, I literally had to ask him for an MRI. Wow. I said, I think I said, it's not. I, I can't see. I'm not crazy. I probably need an MRI. It's probably behind my ocular. I am literally explaining to an eye doctor what I need um, because, you know, you know, systemic racism. Uh, yeah. 
And yeah. medical gaslighting is a term that I'm very attuned to, and it happens a lot in the Black community and with, women, with women. Yeah, and especially with women, but I, as I am, I'm not having it. Right. And, and here's the sadness of it all. I called Hans at Kaiser. I said, Hans, I hate to do this to you again, but they'll listen to you, A, because you work there, B, because you're a man, C, because you're white. I said, I need an advocate here. Um, and I swear to God, Hans got on, he got on the back end of Kaiser because he works at Kaiser. And he literally, I, I in tears at home, they I asked him, when can I get an MRI? He goes, oh, whenever. After Hans got off the phone, I got a call from Kaiser an hour after I got home. Can you come in tomorrow? <laughs> I don't know. And then the next thing I know, I, you know, I went through like six weeks later after I was diagnosed uh, with the neurologist. I was looking through, you know, ocular doctors. And it was hilarious because he was no longer on the Kaiser list. You see, when you call the back end of Kaiser Permanente, um, I always tell people never call Kaiser, send an email because that tracks with the doctors. Right. That, tra that tracks with the doctors. So I went, so yeah, I went in for the MRI um, and I got diagnosed in 2009 by Dr. Fox and his last name is exactly like how he looks. I don't know. He's, he is indeed his last name. It's, you know, if you're going to get diagnosed with something like this, have a very attractive looking doctor. Yes. Um, because it, it, you, for, you forget that you're crying because you're looking at someone who is so adorable looking. So uh, yeah, um, I've been living with it now since 2009. Um, dropped a ton of weight, watch my diet. Um, when I get outbreaks, it's remissive MS. So, you know, it's like a herpes flare-up. Right. Um, and to be honest with you, and I joke around with it, I did a show called The Good MS. I joke around like, you know what? Well, here, well, it always, I never talked about it, but I'm like, you know what? I'd rather have gotten herpes because at least I knew I had fun getting it. Uh, it would have been lovely if I only had that. So it's like, so, you know, a story like, yeah, you know, I, I had a great time with the entire, you know, bears, Chicago bears, uh, instead of, oh, one day I was in my computer and my eye went out. It's, it's, it's two stories. But when I did the good MS, I take everything that I do in real life into my improvisation. And I did the good MS and they, they call it a, they call it a, you know, um, it's in my MacGuffin show. They also call it something else that I don't wish to say. Yeah. Um, so I just, I would get up on stage and go, hi, my name is Sean Landry and this is the good MS. And people always thought, oh, she's about to talk about multiple sclerosis. I go, this is the good MS. So give me something that has nothing to do with multiple sclerosis. And then and people scream out, cookies, cookies, popcorn. Like, you know, going to Rome. And then I do a one woman show on the topic and never talked about MS again. The only thing that was in it was the name and give me something that's anything that's better than MS. And in a lot of people's minds, that's everything. Wow. And were you on medicine or did you have to take medication at all? Um, I, they gave me Avonex when I first um, got it. Um, and that made me sicker than a dog. 
Mm -hmm. I, and basically I hated shooting myself. I, I hated the needles. Right. So, I, and again, everything's a bit to me. So my friends would come over from San Francisco, like Dave Dyson from Unscripted and Amber Dyson, or as I now call them, Dr. Dave Dyson, Dr. Amber Dyson, Dr. Hans Summers. They would give me the shot. And then after three times, it made me sick. And I started doing alternative. Um, I lost a lot of weight, took out sugar, um, watched my um, watched my diet. I just went in for another MRI. Uh, what was it? At the beginning of January, when the pandemic started loosening up a little bit, just to see the progression. Still the same, still the same scarring in the same places. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I refuse to take any of the medicine until they come up with a better medicine that I do not have to shoot myself up every day. They now have pills. Um, I'm still waiting for that to, you know, to see what's going on, if they can make those better. So, but right now I watch, I watch my diet as much as I can, um, you know, keep, try to keep my weight down. I'm back on the treadmill because I gained so much during the pandemic. Uh, so that was the pressure. <laughs> that was that was eating. That was eating my sad. Yeah, uh, yeah. Feeding my feelings. Feeding my feelings. But nothing was going to let you get down. You weren't no. going to cave or do anything like that. I don't know. Do you know that um, I work with a lot of people with Parkinson's? I've been doing improv for, for Parkinson's for many years oh. now, and similar, not quite the same as MS, but uh, it's. You know, all of these neurological disorders can affect us in so many different ways, but laughter and humor and creativity is, keeps us going and using that brain power of ours. Exactly. And that's and that that's one thing that I really dug about what Kaiser did um like a maybe about 10 years ago was talking about using laughter um to heal yourself. I love that idea. You know, it's it, it does, you know, the more you laugh, your endorphins go. Um, you know, your energy's up again, it, it gets you out of a depression and kind of, it really does help when it comes to that. Um, so that, I mean, I love what I do. I love, I love the creativeness of it all. And it does keep me active and running a theater. It keeps you so active, uh, you know, because you're using both sides of the brain at that point. Um, so literally I will go into the theater at this point do the cleanup, do, you know, the moment I get off this uh, podcast with you, I go and actually start creating a marketing. And then, you know, last week I actually did a show. So I did all of that and I'm in two sides of the brain. So it's really yes. making me double think, which is a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Now, how did you come up with the name The Ledge? Oh, it's a lovely story. Generally, when we came up with We Be Negroes, we had an alternate uh, story arc to it. Uh, but uh, with the ledge, I'll be very blunt honest. We were doing the seniors improv comedy. And at that point, it was it was Kim Howard Johnson who we were improvising with. And me, Hans and Kim have known each other for years. We're all comic book people. And we met Kim and Del Close at our comic book store, Have Cat Comics. And we asked Kim to improvise with us. And we're all, you know, as you, you've been on the show, we're setting up the three cameras. Brayton Bombach is, you know, doing his magic in Texas. And we talked before the show. 
you know, we get to, you know, connect together. Yes, Hans. Kim Wright. Kim Wright. Well, everyone knows what Kim wrote, I think. Margo, you know what Kim wrote, right? Yeah. Yeah. He wrote Truth and Comedy. We we all would see this is an improv podcast. This is Hans, um, what do you call the term? Kibbissing? Kibbissing. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Um, I have oh, to absolutely. And what a great book. That was one of the first books I read. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So and he we're all sitting around, we're talking online, and he goes, You know, I haven't improvised in a very long time. And I said, Well, yes, yeah, so. <laughs> I said, yes, so. I said, right. Dude, I said, I said, I literally told Kim, I said, or Howard, who he now likes to be called Howard. I told Howard, dude, it's me and Hans. Who, what are you afraid of? We're online. If we're lucky, maybe four people will be watching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we're really lucky. Uh, but as you, I'm, I'm quite sure it'll be like 15. So he said, it's just us. It's all good. And he goes, well, take me to the ledge with you. And at that point, I was already, I had posted on Facebook about what happened with Acme Theater here in LA. They just closed up, closed up, didn't tell anyone, took me and Hans a sandwich board, took it with them back to the Midwest. And mm-hmm. I posted on Facebook, as I looked at the space he, uh, that Acme was in, and uh, it was roughly about $30,000 and a, a month or some weirdness every two months or something. And I said, hey, who would like to give me $30,000? And that's when I started. And then everyone was like, do it. Because Second City was leaving. Acme left. Uh, everything was being decimated, both by pandemic, along with Me Too and BLM. And I just went, yeah, I'm, I'm old enough. I know how to go and find spaces. Let's do this. And then I was trying to think of a name. And it was Kim who said, well, you know, take me to the ledge with you. Wow. I and, and I yeah, and I literally said to Kim, I said, you know, that's a great name for a theater. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, may I, may I take that and give you credit? And he goes, Yup. <laughs> later. So Kim, if you're listening, here's your credit, my man. Uh, and he and he was like, hmm, a Caucasian man naming a diverse. I'm like, you know what? We'll just flip it. We'll flip it. It's fine. You're my friend and you're an ally. So that's all that matters. It's not like it's just going to be an all African-American, all Latino, all Asian. It's going to be a diverse, inclusive theater. Inclusive, yes. The way it's supposed to have been in the 90s. Because it wasn't. Right. Now, Um, a friend of mine named Amy Seaham. Amy Seaham. She was over here at the house. You know that, right? No. Book. I'm chapter six in her book. Oh, her book is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yes. I forgot that. Yes. Of course. Of course. For years, and she every time when she's in town, her and her adopted daughter comes into town and stays with us. Oh, that's wonderful. I just love her so much. She's so talented and so wonderful and so funny. We're actually going to be spending a weekend together in New York City in a few weeks. New York City. Uh, Talking about the girl from New York City. Uh, I love to sing too. Tell Amy hi. Tell Amy she him hi. I will certainly tell. And I'm sorry about mispronouncing her name. Um, But yeah, I mean, it it wasn't inclusive back then. And um, so when you were at Second City, how many other Black Americans were there? 
uh, African-American-wise, there was, let me see, I can count them on my hand here. Uh, when I was there, it was me, it was Johnny Hildreth, it was Francis Collier, and that was about it. That was oh. that second city. But you're talking about now, it's a whole different ball of wax. But when I was there, it was, oh, Brandon Johnson was there, I believe he was, and it was the tragedy about the 92nd city was amazing shows, amazing shows. Uh, some of the best shows and amazing directors. Mick did one of the best shows that second city has ever done there. You know, that hat's got acid and Tina and Rachel and everybody. And, but the thing was, it was, you know, I, <laughs> you, you never expected as an African-American person to move up onto the stage, onto the main stage. You know, it was always, we were in touring company, uh, we were in uh, Kidco. Uh, so it, it wasn't any upward movement. So for me, I was like, well, thank you for letting, you know, accepting me. And the thing was, they were all about divide and conquer at that point. That was just kind of the model, which is they see an amazing ensemble that wasn't Second City. So what Second City powers that be would do was they would get these the smartest person, generally the one who was doing the administration work and the most talented one. And they break up the company and they fold them into the second city, break up the ensemble in nine out of 10, they were let go a year later. Um, I got, I got, I got eaten up because I, I don't feel that they thought I was talented. They knew that I did a lot of administration. I created We Be Negro. So when I, and they were expecting, oh, Sean will just stop. And I'm like, unfortunately, they don't know the mindset of most people of color. It's like, we can, we can do everything. Um, and we're also driven because we have to be. We have to work doubly harder in society just to be considered mediocre. So I learned that from my mother. And, and she was right. I bucked that for years until I realized, holy crap, she's right. So for all purposes, yeah, I got into Second City and I said, this is, this is fantastic. Did the touring company. And I also toured with Weeby Negroes. I'm wow. like, I, I'm like during the, during the days and when I had to be at Second City, you know, like to sit on the bench on Monday nights. I was there. I was present, always on time, always like with when did I get into into this podcast? I was set at eight o'clock. When did I get here? Half an hour before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> About 35 minutes before. Yeah. Um, that's who I am. I'm always on time a little earlier because I need to break those stereotypes on top of everything. There's a lot of baggage that comes with being a person of color and has all been laid at my feet for no particular reason whatsoever. So I break those stereotypes of colored people time and, and being late and not being reliable. So I was at Second City, always there, always on time. I was excited when I was, when I got the news that I got in, I was excited when they let me go. I was like, that's fine. I told that to um, Kelly Leonard. He was like, are you okay? Because they also let go of Caesar Jamie too. And I said, no, I'm great. I said, you know why? Because I worked at Second City for a year and a half, almost two years. And I have the Second City bag and the pay stubs to prove it. Thank you. 
And then, and then he offered, then he was like, well, would you like to teach? And literally at that point I was in my thirties, 31, 32. And I just went, no, I'm already teaching. I'm already teaching all over the country. I said, but thanks anyway. And I always found it ironic. I'm like, well, you don't think I'm talented enough to be a performer, but you think I'm okay enough to teach? Yeah, no. <laughs> wow. And, and you were at I.O. as well, though, weren't you? No, I was not at I.O. Not at I.O. Were you any other ch- Chicago theaters at all? Or um, I? It was Second City. I performed at the Goodman. Uh, and that was pretty much it. And then I created my own stuff. Um, I've done shows at I.O., um, through my own, through We Be Negroes and the Underground Theater Conspiracy, I was also part of Geese Company. So well, let's, let's go back to Geese. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let's talk about the Geese experience because Dave Rosowski and I were chatting. He mentioned you. And how did you get involved with that? And for people that aren't familiar with the Geese experiment, what was it? The Geese Theater Company. And it wasn't an experiment as much as an actual theater ensemble. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was an ensemble. Uh, Geese Theater Company was a theater, or and still is, a theater company because they're out of London now. Um, and Clark Bain runs that, uh, is a theater company that works in prisons and penitentiaries across the country, does drama therapy, um, and does shows that are specifically geared towards um, people who are incarcerated. And how old were you when you started with them? I was 18. So this is way before Second City. Way, but oh God, yeah. Um, you're talking about, I got into, so yeah, I got into Geese Company in 1984. Wow. So I was 18 at that point. I literally turned 21 when I was in Geese Company. So actually, no, I turned 21 with Hans. I was still in my twenties. I met Hans when I was 21. But, uh, at that point, Rizalski had already left Geese Company. Um, and I, I met him, you know, just coming through in and out of Geese. And yeah, we traveled all over in a 1972 Harvester International School bus, San Quentin, Soledad, Vacaville. We did the entire California. Um, I worked a lot at Spofford in New York, yes. um, where Mike Tyson is. Uh, we barely did any Florida uh, because back then they weren't doing a lot of uh uh, prison drama therapy in Florida. Uh, it just was not that they were, they were <laughs> big yellow mama. They were executing people more than, the, yes, than yes. rehabilitating people. But, uh, but yeah, all through Illinois, all through Ohio, all through California, um, all through Washington state, all through, uh, all through up through the East coast, through Vermont, the whole nine yards. So w- I've been all over the country. That was by the time I was 20, I've seen most of the country in a bus. And um, it was it was amazing. It was amazing work. Also, my name drops uh, in, that, in California, in L.A., in Hollywood. And I was like, oh, I work with blah, blah. And I work with this. And I'm like, well, I work with Manson. I work with Speck. I work with Gein. Um, <laughs> they, they, they could not get me on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> They could not get me on an ABC show. Uh, so, you know, I was like, yeah, I, how you meet Madison? A stare down contest. I worked in prisons. Um, so it was it was an amazing experience as someone who was young. Um, and again, the only African-American in a company 
that that went into a prison system where it was mostly African-American at that point because they were in, they st and still do incarcerate people of color faster than anybody else for no reasons most of the time whatsoever. Right. That, that's systemic racism. So I had this, and I had this talk literally, you know, you go back, talk about trauma. Um, Geese Company was amazing when it came to um, the work itself. I think Brzezowski fared better than I did for one reason. He's a man and he's white. And the artistic director is also a man and white and wow. I saw him, I went to a school, uh, Hollins University uh, last year. Uh -huh. And ended up teaching improvisation there in a class. And the man who started Geese Company is now working there. Sometimes I wonder how people get tenured <laughs> um, with history that they have behind them. Well, I'm on stage and I'm talking about improvisation. Keep in mind, I am 57 years old. This guy is in his 70s now. And I, Hans and I are on stage. We're talking about improvisation and the work for playwriting with improvisation. Because this is a playwriting summer program at Hollins. Uh -huh. And after I'm done being very you know, wonderful and talking about theater and, and the arts, and I'm doing, I'm, I'm putting on professional you know, hat. He raises his hand and he goes, first he tells the story of me saying, and may I swear on this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Anything you want to say is wonderful. All right. Because he literally goes, well, we were worried about you, Landry, because he was, he's English. Yeah, we were worried about you, Landry, because immediately, you know, like he, you looked at one guy and was like, I wouldn't fuck you. And you said to one guy, I said, and I looked at him, I'm like, for all the things that I did in Geese Company, that's the thing you remember? I said, I'd, and this was at, uh, not Spofford, but uh, Rikers Island or one of the places in New York. And I said, you remember that, not the other part where they had to lock us around our stage stuff um, because they had a riot outside of the doors of the gymatorium. Wow. And you guys gave me this weird award because I was leaving and I'm, we had the worst security system ever, you know, and they could have just came in there and killed us all. But you remember that moment? That's fascinating. Um, I said, wow. And then he goes, well, we were re really worried about you, Landry. And this is what this man said to me. And I have it on tape. He goes, well, you know, we were all worried when you were going to leave because we thought you were going to have a million babies on the south side of Chicago. Oh, my God. No. Not, not, not that I was going to succeed, not that I was going to do anything worth my time after I left Geese Company. No, I was going to have a million babies on the south side of Chicago. And I just, I literally looked at Hans, who I've been married to since Valentine's Day of 91. And I looked at him, I, I looked out into the audience and I just went, what the fuck, John? And then I just went, you see, that's what systemic racism is. 
I said, because you assumed immediately. I said, and what's even worse, nice white liberals are sometimes doubly worse because you know what? You can see a racist coming. You can see a conservative neocon, you know, Florida. You can see DeSantis coming. You can see him coming. But you can't see it when it's right in front of your face and they're supposedly allies. And I just went, that's what systemic racism is. And I said, you know what? I, look, I said, do you see? I said, how many children do I have, John? And I did a zero egg. I said, none. Because that was my decision. Not for lack of trying, of course. Wink. And uh, <laughs> but I said, zero. And I said, and that's the assumption. You weren't expecting me to sit in front of a bunch of people here and talk about the thing that we both supposedly love. And then there was an African-American woman in the audience who was just angry and just, I looked at her and I said, look, and she was young. She was 18, 18, 19, taking these classes, summer writing. And I looked at her and I said, I said, so for you, I literally pointed to her. I said, for you, some people will think you'll probably leave here and have a million, you know, malnourished children. I said, but know this, for me, as now supposedly a leader, the only thing I care about is what you write, what you produce as an actor and an artist. That's my concern. My concern is you being a great writer and being in the room where it happens. Because you're, our, I said, if you, I said, you just heard that, and I'm 57 years old. You're going to hear that double if you ever come to Los Angeles or New York or anywhere. And it's coming. I said, the, I'm like, the horror is coming from inside the house. <laughs> the horror is coming from inside the house. This, these are people who say they're liberal and allies. And then says horrible things about African-Americans and women. And this is what you're going to run into. This is this firsthand. And it's still pointed to me. And I said, and I literally, and at the end of that, I said, this is, I said, so maybe things need to change. Maybe the old guard needs, I literally say it, the old guard needs to die off. Mm -hmm. And it, it, everyone that was like just a little like too afraid to applaud because Bergman was there. His name is John Bergman. There's John. And I just went, oh, oh, white liberals. You know, you're so adorable. And now I'm trying to make, oh, white liberals. You're so adorable. <laughs> oh, if it wasn't for you, I'd be dead. <laughs> just because that's what, it's like, well, we helped you out. If it wasn't for you, I, you'd probably be on the South side with a million babies dead on smack. That's the 80s. That's the 90s. That's what I dealt with. So when it comes, you ask me about trauma. Trauma never happened to me in childhood. I had a lovely wannabe middle-class family. The trauma happened the moment I left the house. Yeah. And what I had to deal with. My God, I can go on forever about systemic racism. The house that I'm in. Do you realize I'm in a beautiful little, you know, it's, it's a janky, lovely little home in K-Town here in, in Los Angeles. I didn't see it before I got here. Hans went. 
because I got on the phone with the owners and the owners, and I knew, I just knew they were like, what? I'm like, I, I just got that feeling. I, they were like, oh, what's your name? And I said, my name is Sean Denise Landry. Now on the phone, I, you know, no one can really tell what ethnicity I am. And my name is Sean Denise Landry. It sounds Irish, of which I'm a third of. And <laughs> Patricia literally said to me, and I do quote on the phone, she goes, Oh, so you're Irish, huh? So I'm on because her last her name Patricia Sheridan. I'm like, she goes, Oh, you're Irish. That's when I knew I wasn't going to see the house. That's what I knew. So I literally said, Well, only the good half. And then I said, You know what? I'll have and I didn't lie. I just expanded on the truth. Um, I said, you know, I have a second city Hollywood show, of which I did, but not that day. Um and I can't see the house, but my husband, Hans, <laughs> would be more than happy to come and see the house. And you have seen Hans, um, as uh, Rich Sohn would say at the Pack Theater, he's almost translucent. Uh, <laughs> and he went and saw the house, took pictures so I could go and see them, brought them back, and like, we can fix the house up. It wasn't until James came over here, James and Patricia came over and actually saw me and realized I was black. The woman, uh, the man across the street, Peter from England, who helped us build our hutches, we're friends with everyone in our neighborhood, literally went, you know, I have seen millions of people of color and people who are Latino come into this house and they always said, no, this house was sitting open for a year before they gave it to Hans. And then they saw me. It happened in Chicago. I don't see houses. I don't see houses. If there's the story of the couple literally last year, they just won their lawsuit where they had to remove all of their stuff. They had to remove all of their African-American uh, pictures and artwork and their family members off the wall and put them into a box because the person who was assessing their home to sell undercut them by roughly about $100,000. Oh. And then, so they got rid of all of their stuff. Then they had a, a, a Caucasian, their Caucasian friends come in and pretend that was their house. The property rate went up double. And then they sued her. And that's the trauma of being who I am. Hans is looking at condos because he wants to retire. And he wants to go back home in theory and we'll still keep this place in LA. I told him I, if we go and take a look at any homes, I'm not, as always, I'm not coming with you. I trust you. Take, now that we have phones that do great pictures, take pictures, take videos. I'm not going to be, I could dress in a tiara and a, and a, and a, my little mermaid outfit. And here's the thing. If I just dress regular and you, Margot, came in in a My Little Pony outfit, <laughs> if you came in in a My Little Pony outfit, Margot, and you just walk around and went, I'm a queen, I'm a queen, I'm a queen, they'll give you the house. 
I can come in with straight on cash. Here is the entire, here's 300, no, or here's uh, in LA, here's $950,000 in cash. <laughs> They'll give it to you because, you know, and, and, the, and the beat goes on. It's truly an American horror story. It really honestly is. Recently, we've seen rampant racism in our country. I mean, it's like yesterday. Yesterday, they finally reinstated the uh, guys who ended up protesting over gun control. And you know why they let them go? Black men. Exactly. They, the woman's, the white woman wasn't rejected, ejected, whatever. Um, it's just horrific. It's just yeah. horrific. And, and I, every time when I last, literally, I sing it all the time now because I do like, I did like Sunny and Cher. <laughs> And I and I really love Cher. Um, but yeah, and the beat goes on. And, and the beat goes on. La-dee-da-dee-dee. La-dee-da-dee-da. How do you navigate? How do you navigate? As and for I am again two from 60. I've navigated by treating people the way I wish to be treated, and I can only hope for the best. Um, as Mel Brooks would say, hope for the best, expect the worst. <laughs> and that's a great song. Have you heard it? No. Go and type in Mel Brooks, hope for the best, expect the worst. All right. And that's, that's Mel. He does a great version of it. Um, he's kind of a brilliant human being. So Certainly is. And he just made that series again. Uh, his age with some probably friends of yours and mine in the oh, cast. Oh God, there's, there's so many people, you know, it's lovely to go and see people get their ups, you know, you cheer, you huzzah. Um, I'm very happy. I, and I always, every time when someone gets something like one of our board members now, we all call her Al. Um, she writes for black girl sketch. And I said to her, she, and I love, we all love giving her the number because she actually literally her first writing gig, she was at the Emmys because Black Girl Sketch was up for an Emmy. And she, she's, she's at the house with me and Michelle Gilliam. Um, I don't know if you know Michelle. Oh, Michelle, of course I know Michelle, yeah. yeah. Well, Michelle's on the board now of the ledge. So oh, Michelle and now are over at the house, we're eating. And we're just, <laughs> at one point, Al goes, um, yeah, you know, we're talking and stuff. And she goes, I said, yeah, we, I need to go and get your body. She goes, well, you know, I, I am uh, Emmy nominated, and both me and Michelle just went. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've been living in Los Angeles so long. There's like you know janitors that have Emmys on their walls. Uh, <laughs> so it's like you know, it's like, but congratulations, you got some armor, you know. If, if things go bad, you can take that to the Vons and go and get yourself some milk and eggs and for an Emmy. <laughs> I'm like, good for you, girl. You got, but it shot on you, crazy diamond. But only thing I know is it's really important to people of color because she got into the room. Yes, yes. That's so important. But, you know, to most people who have been in this town, it's like, <laughs> it's like, congratulations. You're, until you turn EGOT, you just let it go. <laughs> 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 it's 
because you turn, you got, you know, you still, you know, you still got to work hard, you know, because Lord knows Davis's, B. Davis, she's EGOT. Uh, <laughs> and she's still working hard as hell. So, you know, she's loved as all get out. So until you, you reach Viola's, you know, it, these are, this is, and the thing is, you got to laugh through it. You yes. Through it, you know. I'm not, I'm not stressing. I mean, every, I'm quite sure if I open up this other message tab here, it'll be another self tape doing something or another. So, you know, for me, when it comes to that kind of stuff, when it comes to film and television, that's, 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 that's steady work. Yeah. And you you have a great body of work as I was alluding to before in film and TV and, um, do you have some projects you're especially proud of or? Oh God, there's a million of them. First off, I was excited to be on the movie Milk. Yes. That was, Sean, Sean Penn gets a lot of grief mm-hmm. um, for some reason. He was lovely. He was absolutely lovely on set. Pursuit of Happiness was also another lovely set. Um, and Will Smith was wonderful. Um, I, I just really, when it comes to that, also, I did a movie, my first movie that I did was in San Francisco called Read You Like a Book. And that was with Danny Glover and and Karen Black uh, when she was still alive, God rest her soul. And Karen Black was absolutely lovely. Um, it was an indie film. It's shot in Berkeley. It shot all, it, it, it shot in a working bookstore. Um, Danny was wonderful because he just, he literally thought at one point I actually worked there. So he kept bringing books up to the counter. It's like, put those to the side, John. I'm like, I don't work here. And he just started laughing. He goes, I know you don't. And I'm just like, I know. (laughs) Like, I can't, I I would love to have books for you, brother. But yeah, but yeah, he's at, he's a voracious reader. Um, so that was, that was a lovely set to be on. There's, there's been a lot of projects. I mean, those films were great. Um, I did an indie voiceover and also was in the movie. It was so ridiculous. It was, you know, which one I'm thinking about, right, Han? Yeah, you, you like bad CGI sharks? Yeah, bad CGI sharks uh, was Jason uh, Majama. Uh, and they actually, it's it's hot in Japan, I guess. Um which is very weird. So I am the voice of the shark. And I also do, uh, I also play in a TV executive that stands in front of these hilarious posters. It is literally a shark film. Wow. And it, it, has, it has its own little niche of, of audience and it's funny and it's fun. And I actually had a really good time. The last, one of the last things I did during the pandemic was uh, to to tell the truth. So that was actually fun to do because I watch all the old to tell the truths. And to do that and to play a person pretending that I'm a blues musician. I threw out out House of Blues. I threw out uh, Kingston Mines in Chicago. I threw out Coco Taylor. I had such, it didn't take much to lie. It didn't take much to lie. Um, and, and now, are you actively auditioning? I mean, you're so busy with your teaching. Oh, you are? Okay. I actively audition all the time. I have um, an English agent 
I have a commercial agent and I'm currently actually talking to Susan Dimming, who is part of Impro uh, on getting management. So, because I literally at this point, people always say you're doing well when you're going out and being seen at least twice a week. Now that it's casting directors are still in that pandemic mode. So everything is self-tape. But then again, I have all the equipment to do that. So, um, you know, where it used to be, I'm in the car all the time five years ago. I'm now literally pulling out the camera. And hi, my name, wait, hold on. Hi, hi, my name is Sean Landry. <laughs> and see your body. Well, let's get back to Hans and and uh, you you mentioned it briefly, but how did you meet and where did you meet and was it love at first sight? No, it wasn't love at first sight, not at all. <laughs> uh, I've told this story a million times on numerous different podcasts, so I'll try to make this relatively short and easy. I auditioned for his theater company. He didn't want me in his theater company. I thought he was a Nazi because his name was Hans and he had a V for Vendetta t-shirt on and short little buzz cut hair. I'm like, great Illinois Nazi. Um, he got outvoted. I got into the company. I saw his first show. He looked like uh, Simon LeBond from Duran Duran. I took him home. We had sex. We've been together ever since. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. That's fabulous. You yeah. know, I, I gotta tell you, I'm still pretty verklempt from talking about disenfranchised peoples. Disenfranchised. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's systemically uh, systemic racism affected uh, affected uh, human beings. I feel which, like I, I've got this big thing on my chest still. It's oh, you're just. It's not. It, it look. Unless you did it, you don't have, I say this to my friend, unless, when, when Trump got into office, Margot, I was fielding calls <laughs> from all of my Caucasian friends feeling horrible right. about what had happened, right? So I just went, look, did you vote for him? No. Well, then, you, you don't want shit to go down? No. Then give. Like now to the ACLU, give to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Be a, you know, march, march with us. March, you know, march with us as much as you can. Support, support us. If you see, and specifically, if you see it happen within your own family, call it out. Right. Start at the root of it. Start at the root of where this is coming from. If you see something that's wrong that's happening to say to me, you know, one of the things that least uplifted me after everything happened in Hollands in that moment, it was Hans who was like, fuck that guy. And it was me who literally said, what the fuck? And called it out myself. If brilliant, we brilliant. To, we, we have to call out the crazy. We have to call out the racism and the passive aggressive racism of it all. You know, you have to, and you have to have the receipts. You know, 
young woman not too not more than two weeks ago. And I will say this on my proclaim that I use the N-word to another black man. I don't know why, but the person she was talking to ended up having the receipts. And now she's no longer in the scene. You gotta call this stuff out. Exactly. You have to. Um, because it festers, uh what's the not passive aggressive, but you know, it's letting things slide. Oh, it's a you know, he's just, you know, with women, he, just being a boy. No, right. boys, right. Boys don't do this, you know, boys, it, real boys don't do this. Right. Um, so it's calling it's calling it out and then supporting the people who will try to make it better. Supporting the people who try to make it better, ergo ipso facto, um, the ledge. You know, I sat in so many Zoom meetings when BLM was really just, you know, and the stories, the horror stories of what was going on in places like Second City and IO and other places. I, and then when Acme closed down, I said, you know what? You know, people slapping up Black Lives Matters on websites, you know, saying, oh yeah, and, but you've always been like, you, <laughs> oh, but you, you not, oh, now you're an ally? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's that kind of thing. And the thing is, I'm like, you know what? These stories are horrible. Why can't we do this? Why can't we have a theater that is African-American run? Why can't we have this? And I'm like, you know what? There has to be a way. And I found that way. Literally, when we first started, I raised roughly about 30,000, 40,000 to start this theater. And that was from allies. And then the paperwork, and then the 501c3, and then making all that happen. So don't feel heavy hearted. You know, if you want to change the world and don't know what to do, <laughs> I'd like to change the world. Right. And there's so many things we can do. You know, I live in Florida, which next to Texas is the very worst. That is literally the epicenter of crack. Florida man. Literally, your governor is Florida man. Yeah. Yeah. And- I have a dear friend. She's an incredible singer, uh, vocalist, and African-American. And when she was raising her children here, her teenage boy, she would not let them out at night because she was too afraid. That was that was my mom and us, even in the 70s and 80s. Um, you tell your kids, you know, this is what my sister, my sister has, Angel has seven children. All of them grown now have children. Um, but yeah, told Nick and Nathan, her boys, it's like, show them your hands. Show them your hands as fast as you can. Don't put your hands in your pockets. Don't reach into your to your glove compartment until they tell you to. You, you become passive. You've become passive. I tell Hans, I wrote this in my book when he's driving. I said, do you realize I'm in the car? So you can't drive the way you drive when I'm not in the car, which is crazy and fast. Please don't do it. Please, Lord, don't do it. I'm in the car, I'm black. I used to say it to my friends. 
I went to a party uh, that was in the suburbs and it was, I called it the underage drinking cake throwing party. <laughs> Everybody was throwing cake. I'm like, I'm looking around and I'm like, y'all, y'all must be rich to go and destroy this nice white shag carpet. Um, yeah, I know. I just, I'm like, y'all need to quiet. And we, we need to quiet down because you know what? Someone's going to call. Who do you think they're going to arrest first? Your privilege will cover you. I don't have that. So be an ally to me. Be cool around me. I've said this at improv festivals. You know, there was an improv company uh, at one of the festivals who got so drunk, they ended up skinny dipping in an Austin fountain. And I just went and only, they got arrested, but they immediately got out, but they missed their show. And I turned around to everyone and said, if we be Negroes did this, what do you think would happen to us? We would be in jail for the rest of the week. Um, you just know where, understand the back history. This is why I have a hard time when people talk about CRT. Um, which is critical race theory. Yes, of course, yeah. Uh, so I have a problem with people going, I don't understand CRT. And I said, basically, for all purposes, is explaining, <laughs> it's Black History Month for, in curriculum. That's what CRT is. Um, and yet they buck it because, oh, we don't want to hurt white people's feelings. Right, right, right. Um, and it's like, we didn't do this. Well, we know you didn't do this personally but this is what happened you can't you know you can't push down your feelings as much as you can't push down history so it's facts it's facts it's history and it's facts. are you um following what's going on in san francisco right now with the reparations yeah. mm -hmm. um and here's the thing also i guess the crime rate also in san francisco has gone pretty much loopy out of control too yes yes um, so yeah, I, I am, I'm a voracious news, re, news person. Um, I tell this to my students, I say, eat it, read it, live it, find out, know what's going on in the world so you can bring it on stage. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and, and I think I said it to you a thousand times, like a clown mirror. Life is life on stage is a thousand times in a cloud mirror. So everything that happens, you know, in real life, I mean, literally Hans and I did a show on Friday, which was, we did a improvised uh, Billy Wilder. Oh. Yeah. We called it Vermont Avenue, which is uh, a parody of Sunset Boulevard. Right. Right. <laughs> and um, it, I, I actually, and I actually wore my Edith headdress. I have an Edith headdress. Oh, oh it's, nice, it's, it's nice living in Hollywood. <laughs> it's nice living around Hollywood. Oh, somehow, somehow things from Paramount go bye-bye and into a thrift store. Uh, so yeah, I'm wearing this Edith head. And I literally on stage said to Hans, I said, why can't it be like the old days? Because we're, this is 1950s we're in. Right. I said, why can't it be like the old days? He had come and bought me wine. I said, Hey, why can't it be like the old days? You come home, you eat, you beat me up, <laughs> and then and then I go to sleep. 
Why can't it be like that? You being all nice to me, you going shopping. Uh, what is this? What's wrong with men lately? I am literally playing that character. Right, right. Um, and, and there's truth to that. There's truth to women over the years and the history of us uh, in marriages all through the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And the object is to know that history. I literally had to explain also that same night what the word nosh meant <laughs> to a bunch of actors. I, I was like, there was there was a nosh, there was a crudette. Someone brought a crudette, you know, that was it. And they're a little tiny mini store crudette. And there was some wine. I said, I said, would you like some wine with that nosh? And someone went, what's nosh? I went, wow, no, that is, I said, and you don't know that around Easter? <laughs> oh no. And then someone just went, I, I told him the history of the word nosh. And I said, it's, it's, at one point, Michael Seeloff, who runs Impro, Rogue Impro, just went, I thought that was only, you know, liquid base. I'm like, no, a nosh is food. It's food, it's a little nosh, you have a little nosh. Right. And, Wow. Um, so it's the small things. No, don't be that, that one. Everything's not emojis, kids. Know the history of everything. Read the news. Yes, Read yes. It. Read it. Get a newspaper, an actual one that makes your hands turn to ink. Get those new things. And along with stop, stop death scrolling on TikTok. Um go out and experience things so yeah. bring that back on stage my i tell students when it comes to the news just i watch msnbc regularly that's my jam and jelly i am still angry that rachel maddow is now only doing mondays uh she needs i'm, I'm sorry i want her to i want her to never fish again <laughs> always <laughs> Always be on MSNBC. I mean, just take over the entire station, Rachel. Uh, and I read her blog and I also read her, you know, pod or hear her podcast. I love her podcast. Backman is freaking amazing. I do MSNBC, then I flip it over and I watch Fox. Mm -hmm. You need to know all sides of what people yes. are saying yes. along with the normal. Yes. Uh, and then I get onto the BBC because they always have a different take on what we're seeing um, in this country about our country. Right. So, you know, different news sources is important. Um, you know, I used to say in the 80s, it's like, you know, go and get your regular newspaper and then go and get the National Enquirer. Yeah. You know, go and get, go and get the, the, the Sun, you know, it's like one of my favorite Sun articles. It literally says, man, uh, man uh, drives into hell. Remember that, Hans? <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah. And how, wait, Hans, come on in. Come on into the, the thing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Oh, Hans Summers. Before we even read it. Come, said, come in. You look great. Before we even read it, it said. Have a seat. Well, all you got to do is back up. That's, yeah. That's yeah. That's what the story was. Come on in, Hans. Okay. Hey, Hans. Hi. Yeah. Morning. Morning, I'm all hairy. That's all right. I'm exhausted. Okay. So we look great. Um, so yeah, and basically, what is yeah, man drives in the hell, demons grab onto him. Yeah, on the hood and everything. On the hood and everything. So how does he get out of hell? 
he backs out. Puts the car in reverse and backs, backs out. out. <laughs> but you had to read the whole story to get to that part. Yeah, it was. The <laughs> best. Understanding all of the sides, being aware of what others are saying instead of just being into our little liberal cocoon and only watching MSNBC. Exactly. Those horizons, it's necessary. And weren't newspapers actually used for sketch writing at Second City years ago? Didn't they look at the news and create? Yeah, National, yeah. National Enquirer. National Enquirer, Daily Sun. They'd have you go through a National Enquirer and see if you can get sketch ideas from the stories. Yeah. yeah. Are you... About- and then you go into the regular papers, like the you know the Sun Times, which was the Democratic paper, the Tribune, which was a Republican paper. Uh, then you had the Chicago Reader, which was the Indy Weekly one. Learner Booster. Learner Booster. All the Learner Booster papers, which was the, the neighborhood papers. The neighborhood papers. So you go to all the all those papers, and then on television in Chicago, it was you know if you wanted to hear more national, WGN, which is a superstation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the TTW, the PBS. The PBS station, WTTW, that was PBS. McNeil Learner Report. McNeil Learner. Uh, and then you had, uh, then of course, the regular uh, news stations, Walter Jacobson and Bill Curtis. Oh, PBS, yeah. Yeah, you watched Channel 2. Bill Curtis started at, in Chicago. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, then he, and then he went off and started doing murder mystery made, made stuff. Made a fortune on documentaries, and now he's back and the host of- uh, Wait, wait. Or the MC of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Yeah, I love that show. So I'm hoping that our listeners are going to check out all these marvelous resources you're mentioning right now, because part of my desire is that we're educating not just improvisers and actors, but anybody who might stumble into this podcast, because exactly. information you've given is so fantastic. So I, I want to bring up something that uh, a lot of people... Well, I have a problem with the word maybe, but spirituality, because spirituality is not about organized religion. We've just come through a holy week for several major religions. I don't, I don't consider myself, I'm not religious. My family is Baptist. I don't consider myself religious, but I do consider myself spiritual. And how do you define spirituality? And I want to hear Hans as well as you, please, Sean. Well, Hans, Hans doesn't believe in any of it. <laughs> Not religion. I'm talking spirituality. That too. Yeah, but you can hope. Yeah, but you can hope. There's always hope. There's a place called hope. Exactly. <laughs> for me, for me personally, uh, I I consider when people ask me what religion I am, I always say I'm the YouTube religion. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, but when it comes to you, the way I consider spirituality is how you treat others is how you treat yourself or you treat others the way you wish to be treated yourself. So there's going to be heartache and anger, but the is, thing is that a do unto others, and- do unto others. And it's literally, it's just taking spirituality does come from little passages of whatever religion that you originally kind of grew up with. Um, you know, my mom used to say, God don't like ugly and he ain't fond of the pretty either. Um, <laughs> So these are, you know, you, you learn, you learn your way through, you know, you know, what's at your core. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, and, uh, I'm interrupting you, Sean, excuse me, but I think improv, improvisational theater is a spiritual experience because we're becoming collaborators with another human being. We're accepting who they are without hopefully judgment. And we're looking for the higher good. 
And I, I agree with you completely. It's, you know, the hope of, the hope of con connectivity um, with an improvisation. Now I'm going to go and even take that one step further. A great theater ensemble doing scripted or doing a production can have the same thing. You know how you've been on in a theater production and you've had the most amazing time. And then afterwards you all get together and you talk and you joke about what you've just done. And there's that real connectivity. That's what theater in general does. Improvisation gives it the extra push because we have to hold on to something. And because we don't have a script um, and we are working with each other to create something immediately through another human being's suggestion, then that becomes more powerful. That connectivity becomes powerful. That's why people are literally drawn to it. Once you're in, you're one of us, one of us, Google gobble, one of us. And thank you. Thank you for getting the reference, Hans. And do you know the reference? No. Freaks. It's Freaks. Tom Browning movie. Tom Browning movie. Watch it. Okay. Um, it's a great movie. Um, and and it's from the 30s. Uh, but yeah, for all, okay. yeah. But for all purposes, yeah. Um, it's that connectivity. And it for a lot of people, it's spiritual because you are connecting with another human being and you're creating something collaboratively. Uh, and I also understand this as someone who's been doing it for a very long time. You're not going to have people who believe that. They just want to be actors who want to go off on them to MTV. And that is fine too. The object of connectivity is knowing where someone is coming from, from jumpstart. Everyone is not the same. We cannot get, everyone goes, oh, we need to get groupthink. Well, that's damn near impossible if you don't talk to each other to see where what other people are thinking. So the object is to literally, because we're not working with scripts, is to meet with your ensemble, whether it's Zoom or whether it's live, and have those conversations, have those get-togethers, have those lunches. That's you know, have have those early Thanksgiving parties that I do and have everybody just be with each other so you can know where they're coming from. So you can know where they're coming from. And that's where I think the spirituality comes from. Um, it's the connection of one, uh, three human beings to each other or five human beings to each other or a class to each other um, and knowing where they're coming from because you know, for somebody like me who wants to use this um, as a theater tool, somebody else wants to get on Curb Your Enthusiasm, or somebody wants to playback theater is coming to the theater next month. Um, and, oh, wonderful. wonderful. Yeah, uh, People's Playback here in LA um, is coming to the theater. They come from a holistic way of using improvisation. Um, I worked with Playback in Chicago. Uh, doing that was the other company I worked with. Um, all the places we I've ever worked never had their own theater outside of Second City. Uh, we all did everything holistically, so it was helping people who had Alzheimer's uh, to go and try to give them, you know, some kind of remembrance of memory. Yeah. Um, yes. Working with inmates, it's a very powerful thing. So I want that at the theater, um, and they connect 
in a whole different way because improvisation is not only for stage, it also is very helpful in arts and education for juveniles who are in the uh, penitentiary system. It is great for writing. It's, it's, it's drama therapy, you name it, it can be done with it. Uh, and that's what draws us together. Some of us just like the performance aspect. Some of us understand what it can actually do. It's great for speaking. It makes you comfortable. Uh, there is a great ensemble that uh, has uh, that what's uh, ADD, you know, people who have ADD kind of right. connect, right. solid, connects them together. So a million different ways of doing it. Um, for us, it's much more for Hans and I, it's always been much more performance-based, uh, stage-based. So. And it's before I met him, it was all about working in prisons and knowing good and well, you can't help Charles Manson ever. Right. No, it's so, sociopaths and psychopaths are the worst thing you can ever, and I will be a blunt honest, uh, I refuse to teach improvisation to people who actually are so, who have been diagnosed as a psychopath or a sociopath, because we're giving them the skills to be better psychopaths and sociopaths. Right, 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 right. And they can't change, and they can't change. And improv to me is about change. And you know, we can't, no, they, we can't. They can't change, but the thing is, because of the manipulation of most sociopaths, yes, uh, they they know exactly what improv is, and they know how it can benefit them to be better sociopaths, to go and grift more, to go and steal more, to go and do horrible things to other people. You know what? I hate to say this, but Donald Trump would probably be a relatively decent improviser. Well, yeah. as a psychotherapist licensed in the state of Florida, I have diagnosed him a sociopath. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And a, a bunch of other things as well. But on a more positive note, yes. We can change the world. We can change I'm very off the world. And the arts and improv is a way to change the world. I, think. I want to change the world. I'm going to change the lyrics to the song. And I know exactly what to do. So I'll improv it to you. Just not the hoople. And, and, and so people in the LA area can sign up unless they're sociopaths to take classes in person at yeah, the social sociopaths, please go away. Um <laughs> then again, sociopaths would know. We just have to figure that out. I don't know. They might put on a good show. <laughs> not, sorry, I like to keep my wine in one place. Uh www.ledgetheater.org. Uh can you can get on and you can uh sign up for our first class with Jasmine Kajuri. Uh, which uh, happens at our theater, um, or you can go and take a one-on-one -on -one with me anytime. Uh, just sign up for myself and we can do it at the theater. And our big thing right now, um, as much as we love improv, um, right now we're going for a Mel uh, Melinda Gates Foundation uh, grant. Yeah, yeah. They opened, they opened it up. They opened it up on a submittable. So we're applying for that for roughly about a cool million to hopefully go and get our own space to start a real arts and educational program to also bring in drama therapy too. But okay. if there's anybody who is listening, 
who happens to wish to give, a million ways to do it. If you work at a company uh, that uh, like Apple or anything like that, that deals with Benevidi, you can actually donate through your organization and your organization will match funds. Yes. So Benevidi.org or .com. Um, you can get onto Facebook because uh, Facebook is a, our Facebook is nonprofit. You can go and hit donate. It goes directly vis-a-vis -vis Facebook Meta now, along with IG. You can get on Network for Good. You can go and get on to Give Butter. You can go and literally cruise. Oh, no, you can't do that anymore because they got rid of that. Bing got rid of it. Um, you can go to a million different places. Um, no, actually, Bing, you can. Bing, if you start cruising on the um, Bing's uh, website, and use the Ledge Theater as the donation, we'll get that. I didn't know Bing existed anymore. Yeah, it does. Chrome, oh. is, I think it's the, it's the Microsoft uh, web browser. Bing is, yeah. Yeah, Bing is. So if you cruise on Bing, we get, we get money that way. Or you can just be kind and give a donation at www.ledgetheater.org. I'll put it in my basket when I'm sitting on the corner. Okay. <laughs> Hans does that. Dancing. I have a little basket at the corner. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Minneapolis, you know, where they have to perform to take donations. That's a neat city. I like Minneapolis too because Jill Bernard is there. Yeah, absolutely, Jill Bernard. Woo! Well, listen, I am. I feel I'm speaking to royalty. You've accomplished so much, but there's so much more to do. And yeah. and you're it, doing it it. It, it. it it never ends until the last breath. It never ends until the last breath. And let's, as I have a cigarette, because that's irony for you. Um, <laughs> everybody has to have a habit. This, I'm keeping North Carolina in business. Uh, <laughs> until the last breath, I'm going to be doing theater and I'm going to be improvising and I'm going to be creating. You're like, what's his name? Um, from um, the producers that played Hitler in the original producers. Um, um, you know, he, he fell off the stage. No, no, no. He literally, uh, he was taking, he was doing stand-up, taking a pratfall and had a massive heart attack midair. And by the time he landed, he was dead. So he was hearing laughter. He as, heard as he laughter. Oh, oh, I love this. And it's, you a, know, it's, a horrible, it's a horrible, it's something horrible and wonderful right away. Right um, away, right away. He literally did a pratfall and died on stage. That's how I want to go out. I want to go out doing the thing that I love. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you know what, Sean and, and Hans, Sean and Hans, pump it up. Um, you are both. Really, yeah, my aunt Shirley used to say that to us too. Oh, yeah. reincarnated. Um, uh, so you're both gifts. We talk about gifts and improv. And you're both tremendous gifts and you're giving so much. I am so honored that you took the time to talk with me today, to speak with me and share some incredible moments. I love you both. I Thank love you, you too. So you need to fancy your background for your picture, though. Yeah, unlike us, where Hans is washed out. God love you. Thank you so much, Marga. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.